Welcome to the Asia Chessboard, the podcast that examines geopolitical dynamics in Asia and takes an inside look at the making of grand strategy. I'm Andrew Schwartz at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. This week, Mike and Jude are joined by Manjari Chatterjee Miller, Senior Fellow for India, Pakistan, and South Asia at the Council on Foreign Relations, to take a deep look into India's evolving partnerships. Welcome back to the Asia Chessboard. I'm Mike Green, the CEO and professor of the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney and Kissinger Chair at CSIS, long distance, joined by my friend and colleague, Jude Blanchett, Freeman Chair and Senior Advisor, China Expert Par Excellence from CSIS in Washington, and our special guest tonight, Dr. Manjari Chatterjee Miller of the Council on Foreign Relations, where she's a senior fellow focused on India and Indo-Pacific security on leave from Boston University. Manjari, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. We're going to talk about India. We're going to talk about geopolitics and the chessboard in Asia, what India brings to the equation, what India struggles with in its own politics and relations with the major powers. But we always start, because people are always curious, with the question, how did you get here? What, what got you into the academy? What got you into policy? And your focus on rising powers, not just India. You've written a great book that also looks at China and other rising powers. But I'm guessing your parents had something else in mind for you, or maybe when you were 12 years old, you thought you were going to be an astronaut or a fireman. I don't know. But how'd you get here? Wow. Um, that's a very expensive question because there's the part about how I got into the academy, how I got into policy, and then how I studied, started studying China and India. So I'll focus on the last one because I think that's the most interesting. And uh, it, it actually happened in graduate school. So my very first semester, I ended up sitting next to uh, Rod McFarker at a dinner. And Rod, as you both know, was, was, a, was a Sinophile and an Indophile. And uh, at this point, I had nothing in mind about studying China. It was really about studying India and the United States. And Rod turned to me and he asked me this question that I thought only Indians ask. And he said, what does your father do? And, you know, and I was really taken aback. And I said, well, my father is in the Indian civil service. And he said, well, so was mine. And of course, his father had been in the British Indian civil service and Rod had been born in India. And so we, that led to this great conversation where I told him that I was really interested in China, but very worried about studying you know, the language. And at this point, Rod completely, well, I hesitate to say lie, but definitely obscured the truth because he told me Chinese was very easy. He said, oh, yeah, it doesn't have a past tense. There's no future tense. Totally. You can totally do this. And just sold me on it. And so, you know, of course, he never mentioned characters. Didn't tell me that it was going to be a lifelong learning process. Uh, And so I started studying uh, with Ian Johnston and decided that, uh, you know, China and India had enough similarities and was fascinating enough that I should study both of them together. And of course, at that time, when I started studying them, people would just be really baffled about why I would ever do that. What could they possibly have in common? And it turns out quite a lot in some ways. But Chinese is, is easier. That's why Jude studied it and why the, oh, the real scholars do Japanese and Korean. Yeah, course, like but. you can totally master it in a few steps. <laughs> That's for another broadcast. <laughs> you can retaliate later. Rod McFarquhar, Alistair Ian Johnston, big, big, big names in the Sinology field. You've written a book recently about rising powers. It's not just about India or China. It looks at other rising powers. But help us start out here by understanding the historical and sort of social political context for for India as a major player. I was in the Bush administration 20-some years ago. We conceived of India as an important 
part of the geopolitics of Asia. And not as an ally necessarily, it was less about alignment and more about just India being a net export of security. There was a lot of skepticism about India and about India's ability to play a major role on this geopolitical chessboard. You've written a lot about how rising powers frame their own rise, but 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 give us in a in a in a nutshell, how how should we think about India as Indian strategic elites and the Indian people think of their role as a as a rising and major power in this region? So I think that's a question the answer to which is still evolving. There's a lot to unpack here. So the idea about India as a major strategic partner is not new. The United States has had that for a very long time. I mean, going back to, I remember reading a, a paper, and I think it was in Foreign Affairs, in 1948, which talked about India as a major partner for the United States and how the United States really needed India as a counterbalance to China. Well, that was in 1948. And of course, nothing happened. Nothing happened for decades and decades and decades. And I think at the end of the Cold War, there was again another expectation with the, with the fall of the Soviet Union to whom India had been very close, that India would now finally turn towards the United States. And even that progression was slow. But then, you know, geopolitics changed. And so what you particularly had in the last five years was an awareness on the Indian side that its problem with China, right on its doorstep, was not going away. And particularly, you know, the clashes of 2020 in Galwan Valley where you had fatalities on the disputed border, the first fatalities since the 1970s, that really, I think, pushed India into thinking about the United States partnership. I mean, it was already happening, but really thinking about it very strongly in terms of its security and attempting to deepen its partnership with the United States. So it's been a very slow process. I mean, if I had a dime for the number of times somebody said our partnership with India is deepening, like I would be a zillionaire, you know? It's, it's been deepening for a very long time, since 1948. But the last five years truly have been significant and that's sped up, particularly after, after 2020. Manjri, I think we're going to talk about India, Russia, India, China in more more depth. But maybe just while we're on this issue of cooperation or or the uh, longstanding hopes for cooperation or the delusions of closer cooperation, I wonder if you can though talk about the role of the Quad. I think, especially in light of ongoing war in Ukraine, there are some important strategic discussions occurring in in, in India. Obviously, in the United States, there is this, as you were just mentioning, overestimation of exactly how far India is going to go and, and a continued disappointment when India pushes its own interests. But how do you see the Quad evolving moving forward? We've got pressures on Taiwan right now. Again, we have this closening China-Russia relationship. What does that mean for India's role on the Quad? And where do you see the, the delta between what some in D.C. might hope for India to play in the Quad and, and what India is actually looking to play? Yeah, so the Quad has become increasingly important. We are on, what, Quad 2.5 now? There was Quad 1.0, Quad 2.0, and I would say we're at Quad 2.5. So the Quad starts off, as you know, as an organization that, that brings uh, Japan, India, Australia, and the United States together for disaster response, right? It starts off to the tsunami. And that changes very slowly. So you do have these quad meetings, you have discussions of what could bring the quad together, but India is very reluctant to have the quad be an explicitly anti-China organization for a very long time. And I would say that reluctance continues. However, 
what has also happened is that since Doklam and since the pandemic, the Quad has started expanding both the breadth and the depth of its cooperation between the four countries. So you always had these working groups that addressed, you know, emerging technologies, climate change, etc. But that has now expanded to include COVID-19 vaccines. There are issues such as supply chain resilience that's now on the table. STEM research has become an area of interest. Uh, infrastructure, security, intelligence sharing, joint exercises. So you can see the Quad's role changing in the last five years, that wasn't the case before, and I would say that I, I would say that, in spite of that, there is there is a caveat to this, and the caveat is that India is never going to, at least in the in the short term, be a military ally of the United States, right? A military alliance is not happening, and Quad would never be primarily a security alliance in the short term, barring some uh, huge unforeseen crisis. So that caution on India's part in terms of security, which you know really harkens back to its very long policy of non-alignment, which it has supposedly jettisoned but still kind of adheres to, that really does play a role in in how India thinks about the Quad. So if we are to think about the Quad as this expansive organization that is slowly building institutions with abiding norms, I think the Quad is on the path. If we're thinking about the Quad as the security alliance that's going to happen in the short term, where these four countries get together and explicitly have an alliance that is designed to counter China, that is not the case. Even though the subtext of the Quad is very much about security in the Indo-Pacific and about keeping Chinese aggression and, and Chinese encroachment in the region to a minimum. You know, Manjri, that actually reminds me, and I wonder if I could just follow up quickly with this. You and I were in a discussion at CSIS, I don't know, was that two months ago? And I think some of us around the table were, were poo-pooing the Indo-Pacific economic framework as a nothing burger. And you made this very persuasive, and for me, revisionist case that actually, you know, if you're trying to build international order, it is a patchwork of nothing burgers in many cases. And that if the U.S. had really been pushing for maximalist participation in some of these agreements, then the the coalition of people willing to join would would be that much smaller. Can you just summarize that again? Because I thought that was a nice way of thinking about, and, and you just did it with the quad. If you have a very maximalist definition of success, you're going to be disappointed, but you might be missing the bigger story. Yes. Uh, yeah, happy to do that. That was a really interesting discussion, I remember. So there's two aspects to this. One is this, and this is this is really, Mike's going to love this. This is really the theoretical aspect of it, right? Which is really, how do you build institutions and how do you build order? You don't build institutions in order always by having these massive commitments. It's these patchwork of little commitments that slowly add up and these norms that then get institutionalized and they continue. And eventually you have what's been called a norm cascade, Martha Finnemore and Catherine Sickink. Uh, and those norms then become acceptable in international society. And so these nothing burgers, as we turn them, are not nothing burgers if you have enough of them. They start to add up. And I think that's what you see with the quad, right? So it's starting to add up. You're starting to add up where you see the slow change in international order as the quad very slowly expands its depth and breadth. Now, what's particularly, I think, interesting about this is for the last two uh, U.S. administration, the Trump administration and the Biden administration, I think has really handled India well 
in a lot of ways. India is a very cautious actor, has always been a very cautious actor in international politics. And so they have not pushed. You can see even with the Biden administration and India's position on Ukraine, they have not publicly pushed India to take stances that they know Indian officials would see as an immediate threat to its interests. But they've slowly drawn India in and been very forbearing and understanding of Indian policies. And I think that has also, as much as China's encroachments and China's issues on the border, lured India into the quad. And so you can see the commitments growing. I mean, this is this is a trajectory that is, you know, it's, it would be very hard to reverse or turn back at this point. We'll have to do a future episode on IPEF, the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, because diplomatically, it's a coup that India and Indonesia are in it big, big countries. But in terms of rulemaking, it's like Groucho Marx's line, any men's club that would accept me, I wouldn't want to join. The fact that India and Indonesia can get into this shows you that the bar is very low and the actual ability to create market opening binding rules is going to be limited. So you kind of need a patchwork of both inclusive, geopolitically significant groupings, which IPF could be, but you also need some groupings that are like writing the rules for digital trade and stuff, which this doesn't do. IPEF does sort of give a spotlight on India, though, and the fact that India joins is significant, actually, and is an indicator of where India's future trajectory lies. And India is a long-term project. We knew that when we were trying to transform the strategic relationship 20 years ago in the Bush administration. You look at India just in terms of what India brings, large population, very young population, so very, very strong demographic picture going forward. Big, powerful countries want to be close to India, not just the U.S., but the EU, Japan, Australia, Russia. I mean, other than China, a lot of big, powerful countries. So in terms of of having an open door uh, around the world to build relationships, having a, a young, vibrant, dynamic demographic future, lots to bring. I wanted to ask you about the liabilities a bit. When we started this work with India and the Bush administration, the Indian Ministry of External Affairs was literally the same size as New Zealand's foreign ministry. <laughs> There's just a massive capacity shortfall. In Daklan, when the Indian army got in trouble with China, kit they needed most was win- winter gear. It wasn't anything high-tech, just winter gear. So the, in the New York Times it will periodically remind people that half of Indians still don't have flush toilets. So there's just massive, massive capacity challenges. Is India's role contingent on solving those, or, or, or can we expect more as India begins to get its, its bearings in the Quad and elsewhere? Yeah, so you've outlined capacity challenges, but the three capacity challenges you've outlined are not the same, right? So you have the capacity challenges that you say diplomatically exist, and then you have the capacity challenges in the military, right? And then you have the capacity challenges that come from simply having a population, you know, a large part of whom are still uh, living below the poverty line. And those are different challenges. So let me talk about the diplomatic challenges, because I think that's interesting. And I've heard that too, Mike. I mean, it's, you've experienced it, but when I've done research in many countries, I would like to deal with India. One of the first things they raise is the capacity challenge. And in fact, I remember speaking with intelligence officials in a country that I won't name, and they said, well, you know, when you have a meeting with India, you know, 10 people show up and you have a meeting with China, they come with 60. And, you know, there's a there's a problem. This is your problem here. And I think that capacity challenge really exists because of structural issues. And the structure goes back to the Indian civil service 
of which Rod McFarker's father and mine were a part. This Indian civil service is very, very exclusive. It was built by the British during colonial times. And the British civil service that you see in the UK today is actually modeled on the British Indian civil service. That was the first civil service. And it was called the steel frame of the empire because it created this class of, uh, of bureaucrats who were essentially going to rule the empire. And what's really interesting about it is how they staffed it, right? It was open technically to, to anybody who could take the exam, which was very rigorous in London. But eventually it, it was became a, a bastion for the elite because it was, you know, the second sons of like Aristos, uh, English aristocrats who didn't couldn't get the title, couldn't get the lands. And so they moved into the Indian civil service. And they lived in palatial surroundings. Like if you go to, to let's say, the state of West Bengal, and you are the uh, the commissioner, right, the, of, of North Bengal. The house that you have, and I can testify to this, is enormous. It comes with a ballroom with a polished wooden floor. It comes with its own ponds. It comes with its own rice fields, right? It's huge. So that's how these 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 men, they were all men, lived. It was they lived in these palatial conditions. Now, fast forward to when the British Empire declines, the civil service, now staffed by Indians, retains this eliteness, right? Getting into the top three civil service carters, which are the Indian Administrative Service, the Indian Foreign Service, and the Indian Police Service, is enormously difficult. And so the Indian Foreign Service at one point, and I think that's still the case, the acceptance rate was 0.01%, right? The acceptance rate into Harvard is 5%. 0.01% of Indians made it into the Indian Foreign Service. So by definition, you had a very exclusive and very small service. And it was designed to be that way because you had these officers with massive portfolios and massive power. Right. The ambassadors often uh, in foreign countries, Indian ambassadors, had authority to create policy, which would be unthinkable for a Chinese bureaucrat or even an American diplomat. The authority they carried was much, much more. And so that exclusivity, I think, has now, as India expanded its role and expanded its portfolio and expanded its responsibilities and has larger expectations of it from other countries, come back to really hinder them. And so the Indian Foreign Service is, is actually now trying to expand. So they have, they have, they're trying to take in more people without diluting the quality, which is also very hard. And they're also trying to have other ways by which you can have consultants come in to the Ministry of External Affairs. The Ministry of External Affairs has now set up a think tank on China, which is very recent. These things did not exist before. And so India is trying to now meet that challenge, but it's slow going. We should... Talk about India's relationships with Japan, Australia, which was not close until fairly recently. India-Japan relations in particular, through BJP and Congress governments, and through LDP and DBJ, just has kept growing. Is there something in India's relationship with other Indo-Pacific powers that's easier or special that the US policymakers should be paying attention to? For a non-alignment movement that has faded, but still probably colors how the Ministry of External Affairs thinks about the world. A country like Japan, which was at Bandung in 1955, or Korea or others, Indonesia, could be really, really powerful. Maybe tell us a bit about how India plays, not with the US, China, Russia, but with other Asian middle and larger powers. 
So here's the shift that I think that has occurred, is that India was always interested in its influence in the Indian Ocean region. That was of primary interest. And so when the U.S. came up with an Indo-Pacific strategy, and you think about the Indo-Pacific strategy, well, there is no Indo-Pacific strategy without India in it. I mean, India is the Indo of the Indo-Pacific. It's the only country in the Quad that's actually an Indian Ocean power. And so India's commitment to the Indo-Pacific has grown as it has come to see that the United States values both the Pacific and the Indian Ocean of its strategy. And so India has become more central to it. And India has now seen that both of those uh, were important. That was not the case even a few years ago. And even a few years ago, it really thought that the US was concentrating on the Pacific and not on the Indo part of it. And that I think that, that there's been a shift. And as that has shifted, you can also see, particularly security-wise, India has started developing its relationship with other countries uh, in the Indo-Pacific. So in addition to Japan and Australia, and of course, you know, here I'm just going to have a shout out because I wrote a piece on this for CFR. You know, Abe Shinzo personally had a lot to do with how he drew India into the India-Japan relationship and into the Quad. I mean, he he could have taken a lot of credit for that. That was a very key part of it. But India is now engaging in maritime, a range of maritime excises with not just the United States, but with Australia and Japan. It actually signed a logistics agreement with Vietnam earlier this year, it has even decided to sell missiles to the Philippines. And so you can see that expanding as India has come to realize that the Indo-Pacific now really is a focus on both the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean region, and as it feels valued as a part of the Indo-Pacific strategy, which I think the United States has emphasized over and over again. Yeah, the geographic mental map is expanding. Has really changed. Yeah, the, ment- the mental map has changed a lot. And I think that has, a, that has really something to do with it. Andre, I wanted to talk about the other side of the ledger, because the, the story that you just painted is one that I think would give policymakers in the United States a lot of hope for the role that India is and will play in the Indo-Pacific. But then we have this persistent relationship between India and Russia. And of course, there's a, I notice a similarity in discussions about India-Russia relations and China-Russia relations. There's this hope that we're going to begin to see either Beijing or New Delhi start to back away from Russia, and, and these hopes are continually dashed or crash against the reefs of reality. Like from China, we've seen some things from New Delhi which show that there's clear unease you know, we had at the SCO meeting in the public readout of the meeting between Putin and Modi, Modi basically saying, what the heck are you guys doing? When is this going to end? And predictably, there was a round of reporting saying the cracks in the, in the India-Russia relationship are, are starting to emerge. Cynically, one might say that Russia is still too important a, a partner for India, especially in defense cooperation. But I wonder if you could give us a a kind of a level set and a more sophisticated forward-looking picture here on what the war in Ukraine and Russia's alienation is going to do to the forward-looking relationship between Moscow and New Delhi. Are, Are we, in fact, witnessing a liminal phase where although the cracks may be small, they're going to provoke a, a fundamental rethink from New Delhi about just how much of a liability Russia is? Or do some of the extant ties, especially around conventional weapons, supplies, parts, maintenance, basically anchor New Delhi to Moscow for time immemorial? 
Yeah, so I think there are actually two questions in there, Jude. I mean, the first question is really about the India-Russia relationship. And the second question, which is related to the first, is about the Ukraine war. So let me let me tackle the first one. So the India-Russia relationship, as everyone knows, is a very historic relationship. The Soviet Union uh, had an excellent relationship with India uh, since the time of Khrushchev. And not Stalin. Stalin did not was not fond of India, <laughs> uh, did not consider India sufficiently socialist, and uh, often thought of Indian politicians as bourgeois stooges. Uh, but Khrushchev changed that, and the relationship became closer, and India started getting most of its military equipment from Russia. I mean, it was cheaper, and the Russians did not have conditions attached to the selling of weapons the way the United States often does. But it wasn't just that. There was these public expressions of support. There was a, there was a trust. There was trust between the Soviet Union and India in a really fundamental way, like a government-to-government trust. There was a trust that if India had a war with China again after 1962, the, the Soviet Union wouldn't rush to support China even after the thawing of the relations. I would say that trust that Russia would not take China's side over India still continues in some ways today. However, since the end of the Cold War, India has been trying to diversify away from Russian arms. So Russian arms imports to India have slowed, even though today, even today, and these statistics differ, but anywhere from 60 to 80 percent, depending on who you believe, India's military hardware is Russian, which means that despite India's efforts to diversify away, what you have is a situation which is really pragmatic because, you know, if something breaks down, well, you need a part that's Russian. How do you fix it? You can't have an American part because you have interoperability issues. You can't have an American part because you have security and intelligence sharing issues. So that kind of dependence uh, continues even as India diversifies away. So there's that part of it. There's also the part of it that India-Russia trade has never been that high. It's never really taken off. And so India's trade volume with Russia is much lower than its trade volume with the United States or with China, actually. And so the relationship at this point is really uh, hinging on, on history. It's really hinging on this historical buildup of trust. It's really hinging on this on, on the continued dependence uh, for supplies and arms. Now, then you have the other part of it, which is the war in Ukraine. So then you have the war in Ukraine that comes up. Now, the war in Ukraine is not the same war in Ukraine happening now that was happening in February, right? There has been developments since then. And so I think it's a mistake to talk about the war in Ukraine as monolithic. So when the war in Ukraine starts, India is very skeptical. And there are a lot of things that it thinks about, right? So the war in Ukraine is a very non-ideal scenario in terms of India's, India's relationships with both the United States and Russia, because at that point, what the United States really is hoping for is a multipolar world where the United States stops thinking about Russia as the issue and starts thinking about China as the main issue and actually works with Russia to contain China, right? That's its ideal scenario. The war in Ukraine shows that's not happening, right? That's not an ideal scenario. Now, the other thing that happens is that there was a really firm belief, I think, for a while among Indian government officials that the war in Ukraine was really not about Asian order. And I remember I wrote this piece for my column in the Hindustan Times uh, where I talked about how the Ukraine war will impact Asian order. And I got a lot of pushback on it, that this is not an Asian crisis. This is really an East-West crisis. And I think what's happened is you see that that's just not the case. As the war has dragged on, what you see is that very basic things have been affected, right? So not only supply chain issues have worsened, 
But fertilizers, between Russia and Ukraine, they export almost 30% of the world's fertilizers. Now, India needs these fertilizer imports. It needs to ensure that its farmers can actually have enough fertilizers and also have be able to afford them at good prices. I mean, India is not a rich country. And so you can see that the, this calculus changing as the war has dragged on, that it's actually affecting really critical things in Asia, including now, of course, there is the their concept of, well, if the war in Ukraine succeeds in Russia's favor, then what does that mean for China and Taiwan? And so that's become a part of it as well. So you can see the, the shift in thinking as the war in Ukraine has shifted. And then you get to now where, of course, Ukraine is succeeding to some extent in the war. And then you have Mr. Putin's threat of the use of tactical nuclear weapons. Now, that's another thing to think about, because if Ukraine's succeeding, well, A, does India want to be on the wrong side of history? And B, if there are tactical nuclear weapons used, well, that's a huge, the breaking of the nuclear taboo is a huge threat for India, because it has two nuclear-armed neighbors that it does not get along with right on its doorstep. So you can see the shift in calculus. Now, with the shift in calculus, what you can see is India slowly, very, very slowly changing some of its positions. So when Mr. Modi spoke up at the SEO, that was the first time I think I heard any Indian official actually denounce the war on Ukraine in any meaningful way. Before that, they'd made noises of cooperation and how everybody should get along, but that was really a very clear denunciation. So you can see that changing. And then on top of that, you can see that the United States, and this comes back to my point about the US administration, I think the last two administrations have been very forbearing. They've been very careful not to criticize India on its stance with Russia, even though, for example, it's buying Russian oil at, at very cheap prices because India doesn't have energy reserves, right? Its, its source of oil from Iran has dried up. And so you can see that forbearing. What you see with the, with the shifts in the war in Ukraine is you see the very, very, very slow shifts in how India is responding. And I think Mr. Modi's statement was, is an indication of that shift. Just very quickly, I what thought was so interesting about that SEO meeting is the readout from the Putin-Chi meeting and the readout from the Putin-Modi meeting, they had Putin in both those readouts saying basically the same thing, which is, I'm aware of the consistent concerns that you both have been uh, bringing forth. And, and, and it was interesting because it was, it was acknowledging for the first time publicly that privately and for a while, both New Delhi and Beijing have been have been complaining to Putin about about the war's uh, trajectory. And it, it was too orchestrated. I almost feel like both New Delhi and Beijing sort of forced Putin to put those comments in, in, in the readouts because it was a very public and, and it was took me back, especially on the Chinese side, the questions and concerns that Putin said uh, Beijing had been consistently raising. I'm amazed. So, okay. So I was not surprised by the Chinese readout. Okay, so I was surprised by the Indian readout. So I was not surprised by the Chinese position. So I would love to know why you were, because China, I mean, you of course you had that the limitless partnership statements by Xi and Putin before. But if you look at what the Chinese have been saying and doing since then, you can see that the war in Ukraine really started to make them think. So for example, Jude, I think you and I have discussed this before. You know, remember that op-ed that Qin Gang wrote in the Washington Post where he said Ukraine is nothing like Taiwan. Taiwan is an internal matter. Well, of course, that what that suggests is that Ukraine is not an internal matter, which is the opposite of what Putin's been saying, and that this is not about territorial sovereignty. And you see that in Chinese MFA statements all the time. They've been 
trying for a long time to delink Ukraine and Taiwan. They're really keen for Ukraine and Taiwan to not be linked. So you have those cracks. Then you have the fact that after the war broke out, there were very substantial and I think not unfounded rumors that the people in charge of Russia at the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs, including one whose name I can remember, who was in line to be the next foreign minister, were fired. We were like demoted from their positions, right? So there were all of these indications that that China was not happy. And then materially, you know, China has not supported Russia at all. You would expect that if there was this limitless partnership, but it's been very careful to not do that. And so I was not surprised by that. So I would love to know why you were. And I was surprised by the Indian one because India is very makes these very careful statements and doesn't always come out and make statements where it is really being seen to be taking a side. Uh, and so the Modi statement surprised me more than Xi's statement. This is probably a separate podcast because how we're interpreting China's position on Russia, I've noticed is a bit of a Rorschach test here. And what's so interesting is we're all interpreting the same set of facts in a very different light. So just the, the, the 30 seconds is not that Beijing has a problem with the war. I, I think undoubtedly it does. This is the first, it's the fact that this was put into an official meeting readout, where up till now, behind the scenes, we know that there's been frustration. But when Xi Jinping had his first meeting with with Putin after the war began, and frankly, even from the MFA podium, Beijing is very, very clear that who is the ultimate aggressor here, which is NATO expansion and, and, and the West, I think you you could say China has provided no material support, but I, I mean my interpretation of essentially significant rises in year-on-year trade across a lot of different economic commodities and sectors. So normal economic activity in an extraordinary time is is not nothing, right? That is very much about China supporting. And then the final thing is bookmarking the the SCO meeting where you had a careful, somewhat muted statement from. Xi Jinping was Li Jianshu in Vladivostok in the remarks that came out saying, we totally get what you're doing. We completely, completely understand it. And then, of course, you had Yang Jiechir uh, the next day or the day after the SEO meeting, meeting with the Russian National Security Advisor uh, in China saying, we totally get what you're doing. We completely understand why you had to do this. So I think if if you know, if we're looking for this as a kind of no limits partnership, sure, of course there are limits. And of course the war has put tensions on the relationship. But if you are putting this as, you know, China is turning its back on or it's sort of leaving Russia flailing in the wind, I, I just, I don't see it that way. I think this is, I think this is China very, very clear about who it sees as the ultimate aggressor, but basically trying to support Russia without burning its own tail. Yeah, I think I would agree with that assessment, actually. And look, China's, yeah, and and the Chinese concern that you saw in the SEO statement, and I suspect Modi's concern, was not news of war crimes and massacres and rape, was not questions of the conduct of war. It's why the hell aren't you winning? Yes, it was why aren't you winning? You promised me this would end quickly. That's what it basically was. And it was interesting to me, by the way, that both those statements came after significant Ukraine success on the battlefield, right? So that was also interesting. And by the way, the, the Xi Jinping meets with Putin. What does Putin do two days later? Mobilization. Yeah. Huh. Do you think if, if Xi Jinping said to him, look, I am totally against this war. 
you know, you've, you've got you've to negotiate a peace treaty. No, what, what Xi Jinping said is, get the troops you need to get this done. The longer this goes on, the worse a position this puts us all in. Get it done. And then, and then two days later, he mobilizes. Mandre, the Indian calculation, it seems to me you characterize perfectly in terms of how the war in Ukraine and Russian actions affect India's interests economically and diplomatically and in military and geopolitical terms. Can you say something about the Indian press and public reaction though? Because if you look at the quad countries, across the United States, you had Ukrainian flags flying in suburban neighborhoods and you had Ukrainian flags in Japan. I mean, incredible sympathy and in Australia as well. But the Indian narrative, not the government, but the media narrative, the public opinion polls suggest there's not this anywhere near the same level of sympathy for Ukraine, uh, at least in the in the commentary I've seen. Is this is this residual non-alignment, <laughs> north-south stuff we're seeing? Is it is it something in the Russia relationship? It, it, I'm not talking about the calculated national interest, but the sentiment of the media and the public. It is very different from the other three countries in the Quad. Yeah, it is. And so, I mean, I was in India twice earlier this year and I have not seen any Ukrainian flags but it's it's not that it's it I will say that there were some things that were covered very sympathetically by both right-wing media and left-wing media like the Bucha massacre right which coming back to Jude's point um you know none of them or maybe Mike you made that point about none of them talked about war crimes or genocide they just said you know this war is dragging on and so but that that uh that massacre was very very heavily covered in india very sympathetically uh towards ukrainians and i think there is sympathy uh towards ukrainian refugees in the beginning of the war there was a lot of concern about indian students stuck in ukraine right so the so there were a lot of human interest stories about about how how do we get indian students out now in terms of actual sympathy for the war in ukraine i mean it's so you when you're talking about public opinion in India, foreign policy issues, barring Pakistan and maybe somewhat China, don't have salience among larger public, right? So you're really talking about the middle class consuming news or the upper middle class in India in terms of like public opinion. And I think there it's interesting because it's been followed very closely, but it's been followed in terms of India's positions and India's dilemmas rather than in terms of what's actually happening in Ukraine. And then if I elevate that opinion to government officials, there you see something really interesting, which is, you know, I'm going to say this carefully, but chatting with Indian government officials, I find it very interesting how there is sympathy for Russia's position, right? And what do I mean by this? Not Russia's position in terms of how Russia is, you know, botching the war in Ukraine or how Russia has, has engaged in massacres in Ukraine. But in the beginning of the war, there were two things that really s- struck me about Indian, the Indian officials, diplomatic officials' position. One was really to what extent they thought of this as the fault of the United States, right? There's really subscribing to, you know, the, the whole Mearsheimer theory that kind of NATO brought this on by bringing a security alliance right to Russia's doorstep and what choice did Russia have but to respond. And there was sympathy for that. There was sympathy for that position. There was an understanding of why Russia would want to annex Ukraine. And that that has kind of cut across, I think, Indian elite levels, that there is this understanding of, yes, we understand why you'd want to do this. Now, there's the other part of it, which I don't think that the India expected Ukraine to make the gains that it did. Uh, I remember even in the beginning when 
the US media, and actually international media too, was talking about the Russian offensive and how Ukraine would respond, there was a sense that Russia had overwhelming force and would use it very quickly and Ukraine would be overwhelmed. And so those gains, I think, were a surprise as well. And so I think that combination, the, the fundamental sympathy that India's had for Russia's worries about NATO and Ukraine, combined with uh, now you can see that the tide of the war may be turning, that is what's kind of led to some of these positional shifts that we see as well. Mm. You explained very well the position India finds itself in in terms of dependence on Russia for weapons and for energy and so forth. But looking forward, do you expect India will taper, reduce? It's dependence on Russia. That's certainly what I'm hearing in Australia and from the U.S. and Japanese participants in the Quad, that Modi signaled that this does change over the longer term, India's relationship with Russia. They just can't pull the plug quickly. Does that sound right to you? Yes, I agree. I completely agree with that. I don't think India has a choice at this point, right? The other thing, I mean, we haven't talked about India-China, but this is a real real factor in the relationship with Russia. If Russia continues its its shift towards China and its closeness towards China, that's going to be an issue, particularly if there's a border war, you know, and India's reliant on Russian supplies. So I think India is acutely aware of that. There's also the fact that the United States has been extraordinarily helpful to India on the border, which was not the case before. There's been a lot of intelligence sharing. Uh, Next week, India and the United States are for the very first time conducting high-altitude joint military exercises. They've never done that before. And so that's going going to take place. Then there is constant communication between the departments of defense, right? Defense to defense and the sharing of information. And so those are big shifts in where India is looking. And of course, the United States also helped India in the past on the border. But I think now there's like a, a qualitative difference. And so that relationship with China uh, I think makes it inevitable that India will try to pick up the pace of its diversification. Mandri, I the fact that we really didn't get to India-China in the conversation today is both a testament to the breadth of your your insights and the, the terrain that you cover. It's also a good excuse to have you on sometime in the future to talk about this. I actually think, I think it was actually really helpful that we didn't just focus on India-China for this, because I think that's where the bulk of the conversation is in a lot of policymaking circles is just slotting India into a what do we do about China conversation. So I think this was actually really helpful to look at the breadth of the strategic landscape from New Delhi's point of view and also from the perspective of, of other other powers. So uh, final comment actually is, is just the, I'm so glad that the council has this program where they're bringing in scholars into policymaking worlds, because again, a lot of the insights that you've provided show just how important it is to be bridging that gap of academia and policymaking. And of course, Mike is a, is a pioneer in that, in that realm as well. So thank you very much for, for your time this morning for this great conversation. And, and I, hopefully, Mike will agree, we, we should definitely have you back again to, to talk about this relationship of, between India and China, which is so seismic. Well, thank you so much, both of you. I will I will make one comment on India China before we sign off, which is this. So when we think it's true, there there's a lot of geopolitical factors to consider. It's not just the India China relationship. But one thing to remember, and I think other countries sometimes forget this, is in the quad, India is the only country that has somewhere up to one hundred thousand Chinese troops on its border. Right? That's 
a very significant detail that I think sometimes we forget, right? It's the only country with Chinese troops on its border. Which can make you pretty tough, but also pretty cautious. So well put. Uh, Mandri, thanks. This is a cliffhanger, Mandri. Yeah. And I think good clickbait for the next podcast. To be continued, dot, dot, dum. <laughs> Excellent discussion. Thank you. For more on strategy and the Asia program's work, visit the CSIS website at CSIS.org and click on the Asia program page. And for more on the U.S. Studies Center in Sydney, please visit ussc.edu.au.